This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. Welcome to Bartender Journey Podcast number 128, Tiki Party Edition. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. This is a podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. As I record this, it's the last day of summer 2015, so we're talking tiki today. In the words of the great John Hyatt, Thank God the tiki bar is open. Thank God the tiki torch still shines. Thank God the tiki bar is open. Come on in and open up your mind. That's right, the tiki bar is still open, or it seems like they are reopening all over the place. Tiki's making a big comeback, and we're going to talk about that today. I have author Nicole Weston on the show today. She's co-author of the book Tiki Drinks, Tropical Cocktails for the Modern Bar. Since it's a tiki party, let's get to our cocktail of the week right away. It's a Mai Tai, an authentic Mai Tai, and we'll be using the recipe from Nicole's book. It's one ounce of aged rum, one ounce rum agricole, which is a style of rum distilled uh, originally in the French Caribbean islands uh, from freshly squeezed sugar cane juice rather than molasses. I didn't have any on hand, so I substituted Leblanc Cachaça, which is a Brazilian spirit distilled also from sugar cane juice. And we talked all about Cachaça on episode 124, if you remember. Okay, moving on with our recipe. Half an ounce of orange curacao, or triple sec, uh, something along those lines, Cointreau. And uh, next, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, one quarter ounce of orgeat, one half ounce of simple syrup. And we shake that all up and uh, serve it over crushed ice. Cheers. So what's orgeat? It's a simple, it's a syrup made with almonds, and it can be difficult to find a good pre-made one. Uh, probably the best one you can find, the best one you can buy is probably by uh, Small Hand Foods. And I'll put a link up to that uh, with the show notes from today on bartenderjourney.net. It's uh, it's a, it's a pricey though, I tell you. And uh, but uh, but that's a really good one. Uh, I tried making it myself from a recipe I found uh, online one place, one somewhere, one time, and it called for uh, roasting the almonds and letting them soak and straining them in cheesecloth and it took forever and it was expensive because um, almonds are not cheap, you know. Uh, so that that was just not worth doing again. So in Nicole's book, uh, she uses she has a recipe for orgeat and it's uh, made with almond milk, which is uh, easy to find in the supermarket. It's very cost efficient. And while it's not as good as the small hand food ones, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good substitute and it certainly is cost, cost effective and easy to make, like I said. By the way, I read if you serve a Mai Tai with an extra shot of rum on the side, it's called a suffering bastard. And I guess you can either take the shot of rum uh, and then drink the Mai Tai or, or mix it right in with your Mai Tai. That's according to Beachcomb Berry's book, Potions of the Caribbean, which is another great book about tiki that uh, we should talk about another time maybe. Um, so, But anyway, the book of the week this week will, of course, be Tiki Drinks, Tropical Cocktails for the Modern Bar by Nicole Weston and Robert Sharp. This book is uh, it's great. There's a nice little history of tiki cocktails cocktails and tiki culture in there a uh, good summary of the different styles of rum and uh, and how they're used in tiki cocktails uh, so then it moves on to classic tiki recipes modern tiki recipes blended and tiki bowls and in addition to the orgeat recipe there are uh, more syrups and infusions in there so uh, head on over to bartenderjourney.net and in the show notes for this show you'll you'll see a link to uh, where you can buy this book on Amazon. I'll have a link for Beachcomb Berry's book as well. If you're having any trouble finding these show notes that go along with this episode, just go over to bartenderjourney.net. On the upper right-hand side, you'll see a Google search bar and type in number 128, and uh, that'll bring you right to it. 
If you click on any of those links, any of those Amazon links that you find on bartenderjourney.net, you'll be helping out the show a little bit. It doesn't cost you any extra, but whether you buy the uh, book or product that I recommended or something else, uh, as as long as you click through that link and uh, buy something, you'll be helping out the show a little bit. And like I said, it doesn't cost you any extra. We have some uh, website hosting fees and a couple other bills that are coming due, and uh, we could use your help to keep the show going. There's also the Bartender Journey Tip Cup page, and uh, I've heard from a lot of you saying, if you're ever in my town, I'd love to buy you a cocktail. And uh, if that doesn't work out, well, maybe uh, you can do it this way. Go over to bartenderjourney.net, click on that Tip Cup page, and uh, help support the show that way. Uh, it's all handled through PayPal, and it's all very secure. Don't be confused. It says something about recurring or monthly uh, uh, you can well, just switch it to one time if you like, or if you like, make it recurring. The price of a cheap beer, $4 a month each month, helps support the show. The Bartender Journey podcast would really appreciate it. All right, we're going to talk Tiki with Nicole Weston in just a second, but don't forget to stay tuned to the very end of our show for our toast. Every week at the end of the show, we have a toast. All right, here's my chat with Nicole. Hey, Brian. Hey, Nicole, how are you? Pretty good, thanks. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Can you see me? Yes, I can see you. You like my uh, Hawaiian shirt I wore in your honor? I do. It looks great. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, great colors. Well, cheers. Here's to you. Oh, nice. Thank you. I made a cocktail from your book. This is the hula skirt. What do you think of it? It's great. I saw it had Campari in it. I just had to make it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> very good. Well, I like your book very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Great recipes in here. The recipes for the syrups are very good. I tried making orgeat one time, and it was hard. The recipe called for toasted almonds, and you got to, you know, toast the almonds and milk the almonds yourself. I <laughs> like your, your right. recipe. Just use almond milk. Great idea. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I uh, in the process of uh, working on that one, I must have tried, you know, two dozen different recipes with slightly different variations here and there, and... You know, I know that nobody wants to spend, you know, a week laboring over something that they're going to use a quarter of an ounce of. Yeah, that's you know, right. I wanted people to look at the recipes for the syrups, especially because you can't just run out to the store and buy those and say, oh, hey, I could just whip that up, you know, and then they'd be that much more likely to use it in the drink. That was the whole goal was like, make it accessible and right. approachable. Yeah, well, that worked. That worked. And even if you go to buy that, it's uh, it's hard. It's hard to find, and it's expensive when you go to buy it. Yeah, yeah, it can be very expensive. But the you know almond milk was what a couple of bucks, and uh, what else do we have? The orange flour, flour water I just happen to have for uh, another recipe, and uh, sugar, and I'm forgetting something. Oh, uh, uh, amaretto. Well, we had a little connection problem there. The Skype call got dropped. It drives me crazy. I need to find a better way to do this. If anybody knows a better way, please let me know. Uh, I've heard people use Google Hangouts. I've never used that, but uh, maybe I should check it out. If anybody knows a better way to do these remote interviews, I'd appreciate uh, you letting me know. Anyway, we join the interview with Nicole already in progress. So you're telling, uh, you were telling us how you got so interested in tiki in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it basically, it was the drinks... That, that pulled me in. I I like the way they tasted. <laughs> and that's that's the foundation of it. Um, but, you know, it turned out that they were drinks with a lot of history. And there's history in, in the spirits, and there's history in the drink recipes, and there's history in the bars. And there's kind of a lot to learn about it, and I found that to be very intriguing. 
Yeah, there sure is. And I, I liked your um, kind of lineage of the tiki bar uh, history in the in the United States that you laid out in the first few pages. You know, that made it made a lot of sense, and it was very yeah, uh, yeah. It was good. It was great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I I was hoping, um, you know, to give a like a a well rounded introduction. Like, hey, this is where it came from. Um, there's a lot of books out there that go more into the history, but I find that a lot of people have never had a tiki drink. Um, they don't know much about it except that pina coladas exist. <laughs> and, you know, I, I want to give people like a jumping off point. You know, you don't have to go all or nothing. You don't have to trade in all of your shirts for Hawaiian shirts. Although, <laughs> hey, if you want to, like, go for it. Um, I only you know, have this can... one myself. <laughs> okay, well, you know, it's a good one. So, <laughs> well, but yeah, you know, you you want people to get interested in it without feeling like, you know, overwhelmed by how much there is to learn. And you can definitely get really in depth if you, you know, if you want to research some of the the men that are behind sort of the the first tiki bars. Well, I I had been kind of overwhelmed by the history of tiki in the United States, and I and I kind of uh, kind of gave up trying to learn or I, or I postponed it anyway. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, you summed it up pretty well in, in a, just a couple pages. It started with Don, the beachcomber. Yeah. Uh, started here in Los Angeles and I think being in Los Angeles contributed a lot to his success because not only did he have a really interesting, innovative concept, but he also had, you know, Hollywood behind him. And I don't think, Tiki would have become as much of a movement if these celebrities weren't coming in there, hanging out, making it a hot spot, making it a place worth talking about, you know, and that's what got other people like Vic Bergeron interested in it, I think. Yeah, well, you said uh, you said that actually it was kind of a business decision to uh, after prohibition. Well, during Pro- prohibition, rum was so plentiful because it came from it was easy to smuggle in from the islands. But then after uh, repeal, there was kind of a surplus of rum, right? Oh yeah, definitely. As soon as prohibition was repealed, people didn't really want rum. Rum was the thing that they had to drink because they couldn't get anything else. Right. I mean, I'm sure there were still people out there who liked it, but by and large, people wanted the stuff that they couldn't get during prohibition. Right. So rum was cheap. It was a brilliant business decision to incorporate that as part of uh, part of the bar, for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That was a good way to go. And then I like how you say the uh, the recipes were secret. The bartenders didn't even know what was in some of the bottles they were using to make these drinks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very. Um, all the recipes were very, very closely guarded, and I imagine there were um, all sorts of strange sort of surveillance plots between venues where somebody would try to send an undercover bartender in or somebody would try to bribe a bartender to give them a recipe. You know, I'm, I'm sure that happened. And there are plenty of stories of of a bartender leaving a place and then going and opening their own, you know, tiki bar in another city or partnering with somebody to open another tiki bar. And, of course, they came up with their own drinks too, but that's sort of how the drinks propagated, you know, just start at one place and somebody else put their twist on it, somebody else put their twist on it and Right. And it grew. Yeah. Yeah. Well then uh so then we get to Trader Vic and uh he you say perhaps he was inspired by by Don uh Don Beachcomber's success and uh he, he actually transformed his restaurant, his existing restaurant into a Polynesian restaurant, yeah. Right, right. That's exactly right. And I think that 
he was perhaps a little bit better of a businessman than Don the Beachcomber was, mm-hmm. um, because as we all know, Trader Vic's um, took off. You know, they went global, and they're still Trader Vic's um, all over the world today. Yeah, and I think I think that had a lot to do with sort of spreading tiki. It wasn't just oh, this one thing in this one city. It was in San Francisco. It spread to Canada. It, it just it grew, and that that just got more and more people interested in it. As hey, this is something we could do here, not just something we have to travel to California to see. Yeah, have you ever been to a Trader Vic's? I've not. I have been to a Trader Vic's. There used to be one in Los An- uh, here in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, it closed. Yeah. Um, and now it's just a sort of poolside bar at the uh, Beverly Hilton, I believe. There was one in Manhattan, I guess, years ago, and I don't know, before my time. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm curious to see if maybe they'll open more locations now that, that Tiki is so much more popular again. Yeah, you'd um, think so. I would definitely like to see that personally, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah, absolutely. So then that was, you say the uh, Tiki drinks were and the Tiki bars were pretty popular, um, but then after World War II ended, and it really took off, right? Yeah, it really took off. I've heard people attribute that to GIs coming home from South Pacific. They had had some hands-on experience or maybe in-person experience with the Hawaiian Islands or, or with the Polynesia. And, you know, they found these elements at home and they were they were eager to show them to their friends and family, represented getting away. Also, people were beginning to travel more around that time. Right. Sort of the average person could now go to Hawaii, and if they couldn't go to Hawaii, they could envision themselves going to Hawaii through visiting a tiki bar, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas yeah. before, the idea of traveling, you know, thousands of miles away from home just to hang out on a beach probably seems out of reach for a lot of people. But you can have a tiki drink that'll kind of transport you, huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's cool. There was something that was called Polynesian pop culture. Yeah. Which is so funny to think about that, but I uh, I vaguely remember it, you know, from, from when I was a kid. I mean, the the whole trend started with the drinks, I think, um, but it really grew into the, like a whole lifestyle uh, movement by the, by the middle of the century. You know, people were building these bars at home. They were wearing the clothes. They were decorating their houses in that style. It was... Um, remarkable i think how much it caught on how widespread it was it kind of peaked in the 60s and then kind of crashed all down in the 70s right yeah you know trends can't can't hang around forever and there were some i'm not going to say missteps because they still helped to spread the tiki spirit for a long time but uh you know they started to mass produce things like syrups and drink mixes and it was so easy to buy those use them as your base instead of Working with the fresh juices, the fresh citrus, higher quality rums, and that sort of, you know, I, I'm imagining just styles change in terms of the Polynesian pop decor. But uh, for the drinks, you know, it's easy to lose interest when you're not having a drink that tastes great. 
So. And it's such a shame that that that, that happened to. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't only in the tiki world; it was in cocktails in general. Everything went to this sticky kind of pre-made garbage, you know. And it's right. It's such a shame. What do you think of this theory? My theory is that tiki's kind of resurgence in the last few years is it revolves around the uh, craft cocktail movement. You know, people are now more interested in the history of their cocktails and and drinking fresh stuff. Oh, yeah, 100%. I agree with that. I think um, if people hadn't started to get more interested in in craft cocktails over the past, what, 10 10 years or so, maybe a little bit more than that, um, there wouldn't be the interest, the tiki revival that there is right now. You know, it was like people just kind of started with turn-of-the-century drinks and just kept going decade by decade until they hit the tiki drinks. Yeah. But the nice thing is tiki drinks never took themselves too seriously, right? No, you know, and I think that's what makes them so enjoyable and so approachable for so many people. You know, there are tiki drinks out there that literally anybody can enjoy. There are sweeter ones. There are more bitter ones. There are more sour ones. There's something for everybody. And, you know, some of the the classic cocktails pre-prohibition are not super, I'm not going to say they're not approachable, but they're just not for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't like chartreuse, say, or, you know. <laughs> right. Or Amaro's or something, then, yeah. you know, a lot of those drinks aren't going to work for you, which is fine. But, you know, Tiki is a little bit broader. So you really can't find something for everybody like within that framework. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're fun and they, and they have fun garnishes. Uh, the, the garnishes in your book are, uh, are great. They're a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah. We had a ton of fun. My co-author, um, Robert and I, had a lot of fun and, you know, demolished a lot of citrus as we, <laughs> as we worked on those garnishes. And uh, I think that's part of the fun of Tiki, too, because whether you're making the drinks at home or being served them in a bar, you know, there's nothing that's going to put a smile on your face faster than getting a drink that looks like a million bucks. Yeah, yeah. And when you're in a bar, it helps to sell the drinks, because if you see the person next to you get mm-hmm. something with, you know, a gorgeous orchid on it or half a pineapple you're gonna say whoa i want that i know (laughs) you know and now as a bartender you've just sold another drink yep or it's on fire or whatever yeah (laughs) yeah well uh i liked your little uh cobra fang is it cobra's fang yeah the cobra's fang yeah thank you (laughs) that was a very cute little garnish with uh and easy to make i made one right here and uh it wasn't that hard to make if i had a sharper knife it would have been easier (laughs) right and you know once you've done it two or three times you'll be Cutting them out like a pro. Yeah. A <laughs> hundred a night. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And you can make them in advance if you're having a party, so they're just ready to pop right in there. Right, right. Yeah, the citrus garnishes will stay fresh for a couple hours, typically. So You want to keep them uh, refrigerated, I guess, right? Yeah, I'd say keep them refrigerated, keep them moist, but you can definitely prep them uh, the afternoon ahead of a, of a party or of a bar service. I would not recommend doing them the day before because they'll start to dry out. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, I'm I'm interested in cocktail styling, I guess you call it. In making these books, you have to uh, make the drinks look good and then have a good photographer also. So it's two kind of separate steps. We were talking about that last week on my podcast with uh, Natalie from the Beautiful Booze blog. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, but, I love her blog. Yeah, yeah. She was on the show last week. And uh so uh, we were talking sort of about cocktail styling. Do you have any any uh, any comments on that? Yeah, I think cocktails are very difficult to photograph well. Um, yeah. 
and people don't realize how difficult it is to photograph cocktails until they're trying to do it. And then when you're trying to do it for a book where you're realizing, you know, you want every photo to look a little bit different, um, at least, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, there's things, for instance, a lot of the liquids you can see through. doesn't necessarily look great to see your props through your drink. Yeah. <laughs> Right. When you're taking a photo, you know, and glasses are reflective, you know, you could end up with a shot of uh, your camera person on the side of the glass. Nobody <laughs> really wants to see that. Right. Um, you notice in the book, we put all of our drinks in clear glassware and we wanted people to be able to see the color. Right. And we love tiki mugs. We have a big tiki mug collection and you can see some of our, our mugs in the background of the photos. But we realized when they were in the mugs, you couldn't really tell what you were drinking. You right. know, you could see the mug, but it could be Diet Coke in there for all, yeah. for all you know. Yeah, yeah. And we, so that was a conscious decision that we made when we were photographing this. We wanted people to be able to see every drink so they would know exactly what it was supposed to look like. It makes sense to me. I like, um, I've always liked this look in photography, whether it's cocktails or anything else, the, uh, where the background is so out of focus. Uh, and oh, the, yeah. Yeah, I love that look. And it looks like you use that in pretty much every single picture. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think um, cocktails are not, you know, they're small and there's a lot of detail there. And so that style of photography really allows the drink to pop. You can see the condensation on the side of the glass. You can see the edges of the ice. And, you know, I hope that it makes people want to reach out and grab the drinks. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you're fighting time as the ice is melting, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. We had to be quick. We did a lot of staging uh, with the drinks where we'd set up the glassware and kind of do a dry run, make sure we knew exactly where we were going to put everything, what kind of garnish was going to go in there, so that when we made the drink, we were able to kind of get our shot set up very quickly. A couple times, you know, we had to scrap the whole plan and start from scratch. We had to make the drink a few times. Mm -hmm. um, but usually, you know, if you plan it out, you can kind of capture that moment before the drink starts to get watered down. Yeah. <laughs> And then hopefully uh, someone drinks them at, at the end. Yeah, you know, that was a challenge for doing this book because... <laughs> <laughs> Not drinking them. Right. Uh, you know, we started early in the day, uh, especially when we were doing the photo, the photo shoots. So we'd have all these bottles of booze, like, all over the office. It's 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> Some of the stuff is... I mean, once you've got 12 drinks, say, mixed up, that's, you know... That's a lot of ingredients. You feel really bad throwing it away. Yeah. <laughs> so we devised a strategy where we would strain mm -hmm. the ice out of the drinks. We'd put them in the little Ziploc baggies and we'd label them. Mm -hmm. And then we'd see like, okay, well, can we get some people to meet us for dinner after we're done with this? <laughs> um, can we, like our neighbor's home, do they want something? And we'd sort of try to give some of the drinks neatly packaged in baggies away so we didn't feel quite as wasteful <laughs> that's a great plan great yeah plan. there was there was some waste but we you know we tried to respect the drinks and at least find somebody to drink them and we drank our fair share but you know we tried to be professional about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i see it looks like the very last picture in the book you have a uh, an actual tiki mug <laughs> yeah but I agree. I, yeah, I, I'm with you. I love those tiki mugs, but you know, you want to be able to see the see the drink. Right. So have you uh, have you spent much time uh, in tropical places in Hawaii and other places? Well, I've been to Hawaii a lot. Uh, my parents 
really loved going to Hawaii when I was a kid. And since I live in Los Angeles, yeah. it's not it's not too far. Um, so I did go almost every year growing up. Nice. Did not do a lot of drinking cocktails then, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> but I, you know, to get into the tropical spirit, I will say my favorite thing was making like a virgin pina colada. And I was, I mean, we're talking like seven, eight years old here. We rented a condo or something for the week and there would be a blender and I'd get a bottle of like pina colada mix and put some fresh pineapple in there and make myself a smoothie. I would not do it that way today, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the passion was there early. The spirit was, you know, my intentions were good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's inspiring. My my mother grew up on Oahu, and uh, oh, really? my my grandmother lived there until she passed away at ninety nine years old. Oh and, wow! And uh, I, I spent some time out there. I went out to visit a, a buddy of mine who uh, was stationed on Oahu in the army, and and to visit my grandmother. I was supposed to stay for two weeks, and I stayed for four months. You know, but it is very. Uh, I mean, you walk around and there's fresh fruit falling off the trees, like growing wild. It's amazing, you know, and it, it is inspiring. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, that you can smell it in the air when you're there. Yeah, absolutely. I love that smell when you when you first leave the airport. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, I love this place. <laughs> I know it's it's hard not to get swept up in it, and it's it's easy to see why it grabbed people so much when they were sort of first exposed to it. You know, I imagine the servicemen and women that went over there during World War II. When they came back. They remembered that smell. They took it home with them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why, why do tiki drinks have so many ingredients? <laughs> I prepared, you know, three recipes from your book uh, just before we got on the call here and uh, took, it took about half an hour <laughs> Yeah. between, you know, I mean, I'm fresh, I'm squeezing three different kinds of juices and uh, <laughs> making two different kinds of syrups and, uh, you know, but it, it's interesting that they're, they're, they're quite complex. I wonder why that is. They are. I think that um, it goes back to those secret original recipes. I think, uh, you know, if you made it known that your drink had 12 secret ingredients, that was going to be hard for somebody else to reproduce. You know, I think it was part of the the mystery surrounding the drinks and what made them so exotic. I have had plenty of drinks that had ingredients in such small quantities, you could not taste them. And I almost feel like they were just added for effect at that point. You know, just right. to say, oh, well, this drink has 12, 13 ingredients. I mean, there are plenty of liqueurs out there that are very potent, like uh, Luxardo maraschino liqueur, for instance. Very potent. You don't need that much to add something else to your drink. But there are others that, you know, you're not going to taste a eighth of an ounce of, I can't even think of something, but, you know, an eighth of an ounce of gin in a drink that already has six ounces of other stuff going on. You're just, you know... It's not going to make that big of a, right. that much of an impact in the in the finished drink, but it makes the ingredient list look long and impressive. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the last one I had to try just because it had so many so many ingredients was the fog cutter. Yeah. And I do, I was just so curious to see how it, it has rum, bourbon, gin, orange juice, pineapple juice, lime juice, <laughs> orgeat, and honey syrup. Yeah, that one I really like. I feel like you can taste all the ingredients in that one. It's sort of surprising. Yeah, there's a lot. Mm, there's a lot going on in that one. <laughs> yeah, that. So that's one where, um, that's another one. That's a classic tiki drink that I've seen, probably dozens of recipes for, all in different ratios and 
when we were kind of making our version of it, you know, we played around with those to see, well, can we taste the bourbon and the gin along with the rum in this one? You know, does it need more sweetness? Does it need less sweetness? And I think that's all, that's all part of it. I think that's what bartenders in every tiki bar or every bar with tiki drinks on the menu are doing every single night. You know, they're making these drinks. They're saying, well, how can I make it better? And, you know, we just want to give that option to home bartenders as well. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, before I let you go, can we talk a little bit about the different styles of rum, the different kinds of rums, uh, and the different um, regions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, every – rums are quite different, and they're made, you know, all over the world, you know, including the United States now. And, uh, you know, they're they're different. And you kind of need to – if you're going to be very precise about it, you really kind of need to – uh, specify what type of rum goes in that drink, you know? Yeah, that's very, very true. And um, on our blog, which is moderntiki.com, we often specify the exact type of rum that we use. But in the book, we try to be a little bit more general and um, give categories of rum because you can interchange rums to a degree. And we wanted to make sure people didn't feel like, whoa, I have to buy $150 worth of ingredients to make this one drink. Right. Because nothing stops people from trying a recipe faster than having ingredients that you don't know what they are, can't find, don't want to buy. Exactly. But yeah, rum's, rum is a very interesting spirit. It has a lot of terroir to, to steal a word from wine. Yeah. You can taste the difference in in rums that are grown in different locations. And it's not because they're made in radically different ways. It's because the ingredients that go into them, the molasses or the sugarcane, have their own unique flavor. Even in, say, Martinique, where they're making rum agricole out of sugarcane juice, different regions of the island where they're growing sugarcane are all going to have different flavors in their finished product. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you start, you know, I'd say the advanced beginner tiki drink maker should start experimenting with different types of rum, you know, go out, buy those little sample bottles at the liquor store so you can sort of see how things taste before committing to the, to the big bottles Yeah, yeah. uh, and do your own comparison. You know, buying Jamaican rums, you can taste that like funky, fruity, banana, almost Mm. like rotten fruit, but in a good way. Mm, Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, flavor that a lot of them have, and then you can go and get some some Demerara rums, maybe like an El Dorado uh, rum, and you can taste still some of those tropical notes, but just how much cleaner and lighter it is in flavor than that Jamaican rum. Mm-hmm. And how about rum agricole? That, that's something I don't know a heck of a lot about. Rum agricole tastes very different than other rums. It has a real sort of vegetal, grassy flavor to it. Right. It's definitely at least as complex as as other rums, but it you know, you would never mistake it for a rum that's made with, with molasses. Right. A great one that I like. I mean Clement is the most widely available brand of um of rum agricole and you could find it at most like well stocked liquor stores. Mm-hmm. But if you have a chance to find it, there is a rum agricole uh, made by St. George Spirits, which is 
up in the Bay Area of California, uh -huh. and they make a California rum agricole. Oh, wow. That's made with California-grown sugarcane, and it is a funky, unique rum that I really love to work with. Cool. And I can pretty much guarantee you'll never have tasted anything like it. <laughs> all kinds of spirits are being made in all kinds of places. They're making uh, rum in Brooklyn now. I heard. <laughs> it's good. Great stuff. Great stuff. But, you know, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, you know, the, the different uh, buying small bottles or, you know, experimenting with different kinds of rums. That's one of my favorite things to do is, make, you know, make a cocktail and then make the exact same thing but alter just one ingredient and see how, how it changes it. You know, I love doing that. That's a fantastic approach. You know, I think – I think if more people did that, then they would sort of start to realize how much the spirits they're using can impact the finished drink, whatever drink, you know, they're making. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, then they won't maybe default to the cheapest thing all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think once you realize that there's a whole world of flavor out there, just coming from the spirits, not even coming from the other elements in the recipe you know, it makes you much a savvier drinker and you're going to drink some better drinks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Nicole, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you so much for talking to me and uh, I really appreciate it. It was so much fun. Yeah, it was great and uh, it was my pleasure. You ever traveled to uh, any of the events, Tales of the Cocktail or any of those? Um, this year I was not able to. I really wanted to. So I'm hoping to go to Tales of the Cocktail next year um, and we did go down to Tiki Oasis this mm. year and last year, which is a big tiki party uh, in San Diego in mm -hmm. August. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Definitely, I would definitely recommend it for for people that that enjoy tiki. Um, there's marketplaces with all kinds of vintage tiki stuff, modern tiki stuff, tiki mugs, tiki art. There are seminars about the history of tiki and Polynesian pop style and really, really friendly people as well. Lots of people to talk tiki with and hmm. learn about the drinks and drink the drinks, definitely. <laughs> awesome. I love those kind of things. I love it. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. All right. Well, thank you again. Okay, fantastic. And, you know, I'd love to chat with you again anytime. Yeah, yeah. If you're ever in New York, please let me know. All right, I will. All right, Nicole, thanks again. It was a real pleasure. All right. Take care, Brian. Bye-bye. Cheers. Okay, that was fun. Farewell to summer 2015. We'll miss you, but we'll drink. Uh, here we are drinking a tiki drink in your honor, summer 2015. And uh, the tiki party is still going to the very end of the podcast when we'll have our toast. Stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, don't forget, my name is Brian Vincent Weber. Feel free to get in touch for any reason. You can email me at brian at bartenderjourney.net. You can find me on Twitter at barkeeptips. You can search Facebook for Bartender Journey. All right, here's our toast. Drinking is never the answer. It is the question. And the answer is always yes. Cheers. We'll see you next time on Bartender Journey. 